we're seeing a collapse in biological diversity and abundance happening at horrifying and mind-blowing speed. I mean, I have to shut myself off from this stuff most of the time. I can't face it. My whole life was built on the love of the natural world, and to see it being smashed apart like a sort of group of vandals running through the National Gallery and just slashing the canvases, it just breaks my heart. You know, I find it really hard to process and to come to terms with. Hello and welcome to this new series of Confessions, a podcast where we talk to interesting, clever, well-known people and try and... <laughs> George Mombo's looking around and we try and uh, drill down into their sort of core beliefs and, and try and situate what it is they believe in terms of their life experience. Um, and we're kicking off the, the new series with, as I've just said, uh, the admirable George Mombio, um, who uh, I've known a few years and uh, we've had a number of conversations which have always been very fruitful and I hope we can have another one. George, welcome. Thanks, Charles. Thanks very much. Very nice to see you, dear chap. You've been poorly. Are you feeling all right? Yeah, no, I'm great. So I had um, um, surgery for prostate cancer about 18 months ago and it seems to have gone well. And I've, I've worked out that with the sort of level of aggression of the cancer, probably around now I'd be dying a really unpleasant death if it weren't for the NHS. Because they caught it in time before it metastasized, but it was ready to go. It was about to spread. And so, you know, it just makes me pretty amazed, actually, to be alive and healthy. And, You're looking well. Yeah, well, thank you. No, no, I feel great. The way this works, George, is we tend to uh, start by trying to... Um, uh, talk a little bit about your childhood, where you come from, some of the ideas that developed when you were small and so forth. So perhaps if you describe a little bit about the, the home in, into which mm. you were born. Sure. Well, um, it wasn't a happy one. Um, oh. It was a privileged one. Um, so um, my dad had quite a big income. Um, it was a sort of third tier of the dominant classes, really. So no land, no capital, but quite a high income. I see. And um, there was a lot of suppressed anger and tension which occasionally boiled up. Um, from almost the outset, I mean, I'm told that even in my pram, I was completely focused on the natural world. And, uh, you know, I'd follow the birds around with my eyes and, and that was really where my interest lay. And, and, and it became the place I'd retreat to um, when things weren't going well. Um, and And I became really... Ab absorbed and obsessed in it. Um, my third birthday present at my request was a subscription to Animals magazine, which was, the, yeah, <laughs> which was a precursor to BBC Wildlife magazine. Um, when I was eight, I did my first direct action. Um, unfortunately, by myself, this bloke was trying to cut down a hollow tree which had a woodpecker's nest in it, which I'd been watching for, for um, weeks before. And this bloke comes along with a chainsaw and... Um, so I clung on to the tree, but um, being an obedient boy, went home for lunch, <laughs> and, uh, which taught me something very important about environmental direct action. Um, uh, and if I can press, why, why was it unhappy, George? Well, it was one of those families, um, as I think many in that class are, where just nothing is discussed. There's all sorts of I trauma, see. and there was a lot of trauma in, I think, I think in my parents' childhoods, nothing discussed none of it discussed and then as trauma began to accumulate in our own childhoods partly as a result of that sort of inherited sort of 
absence of engagement with staff, um, that couldn't be discussed either. So um, when I was eight, I was sent to a boarding school, um, a prep school, um, which was an utterly brutal institution. I mean, it's quite amazing. You know, you think, well, this is, you know, this is what happens to privileged children. They get sent to, to, to a boarding school. And you know, psychologists now say, well, there's really no difference in terms of psychic impact on the child to being taken into care, except that your own parents demand it. And it was an extraordinary place. There's no, no pastoral care at all. Um, when I turned up on the first day, really disoriented and shocked and frightened, I just didn't really understand that I was being left there for um, weeks and I wouldn't be seeing my parents for weeks. Um, and obviously I registered that, I cried, and instead of attracting any help, you could see this predatory, gloating fascination from the older boys who... Then... You and I went to the same school. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> we went at the same... I went to seven, but we went to... Yeah. I, I read your... You wrote a piece about mm. this quite mm. recently, didn't mm. you? And in fact, there was a sort of moment of uh, extraordinary revelation in the piece because in it you described um, Boris Johnson mm. um, who went to another place not dissimilar called Ashdown House and you yeah. mentioned it in your piece and I suddenly realised when I read that because I went to a prep school about five miles away from Ashdown House mm. and I remember it was the first time I realised I remember Boris as a child playing cricket because wow. <laughs> I'm the same That's exactly the same age and we were and yeah. they it was I mean Ashdown House was a very dysfunctional mm. place where there was mm. abuse and so forth mm. and mine wasn't sexual but it was certainly violent yeah. and, and uh, neglectful yeah. uh, in the way that you describe well in both our schools i know there was a culture of sexual abuse um and it's been well documented in ashdown house by alex renton um and that affects everybody you know it, it, it's even if you're not directly the victim of it and you know i'm glad you weren't and i wasn't either and luckily i was a sort of i was school weirdo so you know i was sort of left alone by the abusers i wasn't sort of part of those their circles of abuse at all so my response to all that was really to bury myself in nature even more so you were treated into refuge. the gardens or whatever there was there in the in the prep school that's right and um you know and as these posh places were it had lavish grounds and um and so there were whenever i had a spare moment which wasn't very often because your time is very marshaled um but they had to let us go at some points at weekends because they couldn't control us all the time um i could bury myself in the woods and in the ponds and in the sort of forgotten little corners and really retreat completely from this place I found terrifying and horrible and I didn't understand it at all and wasn't understood by it either where you know teachers and boys combined to abuse people I mean it was just extraordinary that this this was permitted and, and that there was no attempt whatsoever to prevent any of the horrible things that were done to children there. Before we follow up on the, 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 the natural world, which is obviously going to form an important part of our conversation, perhaps to just say something, uh, you could say something about the, the more political, more sort of uh, political sort of values, as it were, mm. um, that were going on. Because your, your dad was a Tory, wasn't mm. he? Is that, that's yes, right. That's right. So it was yeah. a Tory household? Yes, yes, it was. Um, not sort of really a sort of actively ideological one they would go along with whatever the prevailing current was within the conservative party rather than sort of 
having any strong convictions in that area, but very ambitious, wanted to become an MP, wanted to become Prime Minister, whatever it might be, didn't succeed in those, but really focused on Conservative Party politics. You know, both my parents, workaholics, working incredibly hard on, um, uh, you know, weekday stuff, but then my dad would come home and work on on Conservative Party stuff. And I, I, actually, one thing it did do was just put me off party politics altogether. <laughs> <laughs> I just couldn't understand why anyone would like want to devote so much of their time to any political party. Siblings? Yes, um, two sisters, um, uh, both younger than me. Um, the one closest to me in age, she died, I think, directly as a result of her schooling. Um, wow. She went to a, a, another boarding school, um, even more brutal than mine, where in this case the staff joined in with the nighttime bullying. They would um, come and pile in on the girls who were like at the bottom of the pecking order, and my sister Catherine was. She contracted anorexia, I think directly as a result of this, an attempt, well, as she said, you know, try to find herself, get some sort of control. And she overcame it after a few years, but it's one of these things which lodges in your mind like a sort of kink in the brain and it came back um and uh in her 30s and killed her then i'm so terribly sorry it's uh it's just uh, you know it, this is a system i mean and th- th- these are outcomes of this completely brutal and dysfunctional system which also governs the nation <laughs> I, I remember when i was um at prep school and i think this is sort of shapes so much of what happened to me in terms of my sort of political imagination. I remember the moment, I remember when I realised that the black kids were beaten more than the white Mm. kids. I remember when I realised that and that there wasn't anything that they'd done, it was Mm. just that they were beaten more. And there was a sense of like, I'm on your side, sort of irrespective against these bastards. And and that bullying thing, you know, Mm. the sort of the anti-bullying, sort of like the instinct for hatred of bullying has stayed with me. Me too. And that's really informed my politics. It's really shaped me. It's that sort of, that's just the, the recognition of the, the, the way in which the system is itself a bullying system and arises from that almost schooling in bullying. Yeah, you yeah, sort of learn yeah. to bully. But also, of course, you know, there's a sort of global bullying aspect of it as well. Um, it was completely steeped in imperial history and imperial geography. I mean, we were literally still taught using geography textbooks where a third of the world was coloured pink and this was meant to be a source of pride. The history textbooks were all about the awful things those brown people did to us, like the black hole of Calcutta and the siege of Khartoum, when all we'd gone to do was to try to improve their lives by taking their land and their labour and their resources and the rest of it. And then, So then big school, Mm -hmm. posh school again, Mm -hmm. you went to Stowe. I went to Stowe. Um, I enjoyed that much more. David Uh, Niven and, you know, Richard Branson. There's there's a lot of... uh, But that's a more liberating experience. Yeah, and I, I was old enough then. Thirteen, I could cope with boarding fine. At eight, I just couldn't. And and I sort of almost determined I'm going to have a great time here. That was what I decided. And I straight away started making friends. Um, had amazing grounds also, which I could lose myself in, which had become a habit. Um, but that was that was great. And I, I I actually enjoyed almost every aspect of it. And you clever boy. 
yeah i did top set sort of thing yeah no I, I academically i mean this was part of the problem i was crap at sport and really good at academic stuff which straight away puts you in in the corner of, of the, the the outsider and the unwanted because you know sort of being a swat was a, a, as much of a crime as being bad at sport <laughs> which was i mean being bad at sport really was seen as a moral failing mm. because you weren't a team player i literally wasn't a team player mm. because for a start i had glasses i couldn't see a damn thing for a second i had this undiagnosed allergic rhinitis which had literally stuck all the mucous membranes in my nose to, uh, together so i was a mouth breather breather i was a genuine mouth breather until i had an <coughs> operation at 13 which again was a bit of a liberation because right. suddenly i could breathe through my nose i could run right. i didn't just collapse and asphyxiate as soon as right. i started running right. and then so bang on about this but then you went to brasenose which is mm. another sort of you know amongst the oxford colleges that would be yeah. one of the most conservative and establishments yeah yeah i i i just i, I started going down the list um when i went you know you sent you, you sent you say right go and choose a college and so i started with Balliol as it was the first in the alphabet and then i i, I thought that was quite nice and then i went to brazenose i, I like the architecture and then i bumped into a, a friend and we went to the pub and that, <laughs> so that's why i ended up stay there yeah and you did zoology uh, yes i did zoology and and it's not uh, these days it, I, I one i wouldn't go to oxford i i i, I think there's there's some fundamental issues with it, which have recently just come up with this appalling treatment of the blind black student in the Oxford Union who was dragged out by his ankles, and it's sort of, which to me is almost a metaphor for the whole system. There, there, there are a lot of things wrong, and I tried to join in with this very dysfunctional culture, and really, yeah, well, I fell, fell flat on my face. I mean, literally in a drunken stupor quite often. Um, it didn't really work for me, and also zoology. It was a great course, you know, taught by some amazing people, but it was so narrow that I just started going mad with frustration. You know, I wanted to know, well, I wanted to know about botany, but I also wanted to know about philosophy and about politics and, and, and about history and, and about languages and and ethics and logic. And there were so many things I would love to have been able to learn, but at this very early age you get channelled into this extreme specialisation and it makes idiots of us all. Do you think there might be people listening to this who who like want to push back a little bit on you and say there was enormous privilege in in this what we've yeah, just described yeah. and so forth and sort of kicking against it and mm. and sort of bemoaning it a little is a bit I don't know it felt maybe it feels a bit rich yeah <laughs> to yeah do no that. no I, I totally get that I, I completely understand that but I think we just have to be really clear eyed about this system and we have to understand that this is a system that exploits everybody of course uh, you know the thought which occurred to me constantly you know even in my childhood was bloody hell if this is how they treat their their own members their own class members how are they treating the rest of the world how are they treating everybody else and it's a system which instills privilege breeds privilege creates a sense of entitlement coming out of that but it's also this profoundly dysfunctional system which screws everybody up it, it screws the participants up and it screws the people they come to dominate up so I, i'm not embarrassed about kicking against that system in fact i think i have a moral duty to kick against that system so you 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 leave your educational and then suddenly the world opens up before mm. you and uh so what what is it you wanted to do with your life when you're when you're um you know well, about to leave oxford there was only one thing i mean i was still obsessed with the natural world but i i you know even in my childhood becoming aware of just 
the massive threats it was under and the huge damage being done. So I thought the one thing I want to do is to become an investigative environmental journalist. And such things didn't exist. There were no investigative environmental journalists, in, uh, as far as I knew, in, in Britain. Um, and... Um, and I wanted to make programmes for the BBC in investigating environmental horrors around the world. So I, I, and I eventually got the job. With, I quote, you're so fucking persistent you got the job. <laughs> it, just, it was easier. This was, ahead of the the BBC? Hist- this was the head of the Natural History Unit okay. at the BBC. It was easier to give me the job than to refuse the job because I just spent <laughs> so a year and a half just banging my head against their doors. The last year and a half at university. And, and so they wanted me to start during my finals. And I got, managed to get four weeks grace. And I loved it, and it worked incredibly well. I mean, we cracked some massive stories. In those days, the BBC was this really bold, investigative organisation which was going to go out and get the bastards. And and I loved it, and I was good at it. And How, how did you know? Can I just, just re- retrace a little bit? Because this is quite... In terms of the sort of feeling of environmental... Ca- catastrophe and all of that sort of stuff Uh, those are things that we are familiar with now but i think back in the times that you're talking about then Mm. that was not how did when was your first sort of awakening to the idea Mm. that the planet was in some sense in peril Mm. well it's a good question i don't know the exact answer i mean i know that I just spent almost reflexively my whole childhood fighting the little instances of environmental destruction. I mean, at my prep school, I was called Save the Moles Monbiot because I would go around kicking off all the mole traps to the massive uh, disgust of the groundskeeper. (laughs) 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 He hated you. Yeah, he really hated me. (laughs) One, because it was his job, and two, because he sold the skins. So I deprived him him of of income, I'm afraid. But... um, and and I would I would literally get in. I mean, I once got into a fight with a whole bunch of boys because they were killing all these bees, which were coming out of this bees nest in a in a clay bank. And 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 I was saying, what are you doing? This is ridiculous. And they were, we've got to kill the wasps. And they're, well, a they're not even wasps, and b why do you want to kill them anyway? And they were so insistent that they were wasps, and I was so insistent that they were bees, which they were, that it came to blows, and I got beaten up over it. <laughs> so so there was always that element, um, and and I was always, um, uh, but you know, and I, I, so I joined Friends of the Earth and, you know, got their bulletins and there was a sort of whole sort of Samizdat literature, sort of small environmental groups, Earth First later on, um, just publishing um, um, stuff about what was really going on, which just was scarcely touching the media, any of it. So, um, and in these cases, we, as soon as we started to establish a reputation for doing investigative programs people started coming to us with with some really powerful stories and so one of my programs won a sony award we we got we broke international news a couple of times you know it was really great and i thought well, this and is, you this got is under me. people's skin we didn't really, you we really really i mean you had some angry. hairy sort of like uh mm. hairy times in well the, that came later actually. i see that came later so i did that a couple of years okay and then, um, beginning of 1987, Mrs. Thatcher launched her coup against the BBC. It had made programmes like Maggie's Militant Tendency about the people who'd been fascists in their youth who were in her cabinet and, and um, secret society about um, unauthorised spending that the government hadn't got Parliament to approve, these secret programmes. And she went absolutely ballistic and forced the Director-General, Alastair Milne, to resign. 
And the very day after he did so, my boss came into the office and said, that's it, no no more investigative programmes. And I said, well, sorry, what do you mean? How can you not have investigative programmes? He said, we've had it from the top, no more investigative programmes. I said, but, but investigative programmes is journalism. You know, you don't, uh, journalism is what other people don't want you to find out, right? That's investi- investigative programmes. He said, look, look, don't argue with me. He said, I'm just passing on what I've been told. There's no more investigative programmes. And it was on that day that I thought, you know, I was devastated. I was de- because that was my life plan. You know, I was going to just stay at the BBC, carry on doing that. That's all I wanted to do. And um, so I sort of instantly started planning. And on that day, I thought I'm going to have to leave the BBC. There's no, there's no option about that. But I was working on this very big story about the Indonesian transmigration program, about um, the Suharto dictatorship's plan to move hundreds of thousands of people from Bali and Java out into the outer islands of Indonesia to sort of turn the whole thing into this uh, sort of single coherent state, these 14,000 islands spread across an area wider than Europe in um, uh, you know, with hundreds of different languages, hundreds of different peoples. We're going to Indonesianize Indonesia. That was his approach um, with some really brutal consequences for people and for the living world. And... Um, and this hadn't been covered. And it was being backed by the World Bank, by the US government, by the UK government. And I was I just thought, this is such a huge story. Why isn't anyone covering this? So so um, I was going to do it for the BBC. And when that wasn't possible, I left the BBC, took it to a publisher and said, um, look, I'm crazy enough to go out and do this. It'll be a great story, whatever happens. <clears throat> and they backed me. So I then phoned up my best friend, Adrian Arbib, who was uh, who's a photographer, but was at the time stuck in this job he hated and um and i said listen adrian i got this um offer from a publisher um to to go to indonesia particularly want to go to west papua this occupied territory where it's all kicking off um it's extremely dangerous and he said yes i said what do you mean yes he said the answer is yes i said i haven't asked you a question yet he said i know but the answer is yes so um <laughs> these two 24-year-old idiots, you know, just sort of like, yes, we're going to go out and get this story. And, of course, oh. yeah, this is why wars get fought. You really, you know, danger applies to everyone else. It doesn't apply to you. And, you know, sort of looking back on it, the chances of us coming out of there were really quite small because we were up against this horrendous military dictatorship. I mean, totally ruthless, unscrupulous bunch of people doing really nasty things they didn't want people to see in an occupied territory uh, on the other side of the world and um, in a place which was incredibly physically difficult to to, 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 to get around in. And um, we weren't allowed in there. Uh, we tried and tried for weeks to get what they call a Surat Jalan, a pass to go to West Papua, which you know was the place we needed to be. And we couldn't get one, couldn't get one. And then one day I was walking down this corridor in the um, central police office in Jakarta, looking for a drink of water. And I saw this um, door ajar, which said head of immigration police on the door. So I thought, in my very sort of English public school way, <laughs> I will go in and reason with the chap. That'll sort it out. <laughs> Talk slowly, and he will agree. Oh, dear. So I knock on the door, and there's no answer. And I push the door uh, uh, open more, and there's no one in there. And I thought, oh, dear. And then I thought, wait a minute. And there on his desk was a pad of headed notepaper and a stamp. Oh, no. You're making me so tense. Who needs the head of immigration, please? So, So I took the paper, stamped it liberally. And um, with the help of some Indonesian friends, we wrote ourselves. Oh this my word! <laughs> and it got us 
out of and into the most phenomenal amount of trouble. I mean, at one point, we, we were stopped in West Papua and um, they asked to see our papers and I gave them this pass, you know, with this sort of confident flourish. And he, the, uh, this was the... the um, uh, military, uh, uh, military, police. Yeah, yeah, military captain, and he just shook his head. And I said, what do you mean? What are you shaking? Said, no, 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 this isn't right. And they held us for three days while they tried to get radio contact with Jakarta to find out whether this pass was genuine or not. And we would have been shot, no question at all. My hair was coming out in clumps. They couldn't make contact. And so they let us go. <laughs> And, you must um, have been absolutely crapping yourself. I, 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 I mean, I literally, I literally was. My, my guts were, were like, you know, like I had amoebic dysentery. You know, that's how it felt. I was so. Uh, t- we were convinced we were going to be killed. Absolutely convinced. But um, we wanted to get to the south of West Papua, where things were really kicking off. There was massives of migrants had been brought in. Huge fights with the indigenous people whose land they'd been given mass environmental destruction and we found the only way we could get there undetected was to walk we could get to the central highlands a little town called Wamana in the central highlands and then we had to walk for four weeks to get down to the south and it was incredible and terrifying and astonishing the whole the whole way i mean we we you know walked up through places with absolutely no contact with any outside culture at all. They were just um, places with an incredibly rich culture of their own, but no metal, um, people still using stone tools. Um, uh, we walked into settlements where they had literally never seen an outsider, the, peop- the people there, a, a person who wasn't West Papuan. Um, and, and then um, we got up to the... Um, top of the mountains, about 14,000 feet, and uh, this amazing karstic scenery. And then, and from the top, you could see about 200 miles, and at night, you couldn't see a single light, nothing. It was just rainforest and then the sea. Really uh, extraordinary. There's nowhere like that on Earth today. And then we went down the other side, and on the other side of the mountains was completely uninhabited and had been for about 30 or 40 years. No one could tell us why. And it was trackless, and we instantly got lost. And um, we were with two West Papuan guides, but they obviously were as lost as we were. And uh, we were just trying to fight our way south, but all the time we were coming across these sheer cliff walls. Um, It was, uh, and we ran out of food within a couple of days because there was no one to buy food from. And so we ended up eating insects, rats, snakes anything but for three days we didn't eat at all and and you know, we were genuinely convinced that we were um going to starve to death um we lost each of us lost a couple of stone um we got these leech bites which wouldn't heal because we were vitamin b deficient and so they just started getting bigger and bigger and starting to ulcerate um we um i got swept away down the mountain river and just got rescued by adrian before i drowned um we uh, it was extraordinary but eventually Eventually, after an amazing set of adventures, we came out down to one of the big rivers flowing south and managed to get a dugout canoe and then went on by canoe and and came out into the very place we wanted to be. But it was uh, just the sort of And you got the story? We got the story. We got the story. We saw these sort of horrendous things were being done. 
Um, and I wrote that up in my first book, Poisoned Arrows, which did reasonably well, which got me an advance to go to Brazil to work in the Amazon for a couple of years. And that's really where my political education began. You know, there's a, I mean, you're, you're obviously aware of the fact that the sort of like, the sort of chutzpah that propels you to, to go into this guy's office and so forth. That's a very public schooly type of, you know, story in a way. It, it's funny you should say that because um, the, the, the headmaster of, um, of Stowe, um, when, when, when our book Poisoned Arrows came out, wrote a letter saying, um, well, many congratulations, chaps, a very oh, fine okay. book. Um, where on earth did you learn to be so damn cheeky? <laughs> and, and Adrian, my collaborator, <coughs> sent him a letter on his own headed <laughs> notepaper, which he had stolen from the headmaster's office <laughs> ten years before. <laughs> This might give you a clue, sir. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, I mean, we could talk about adventures all of the time, and obviously you've had many of them, but uh, let's let's bring this conversation up to the present and let's talk about the environmental catastrophe. C- could you just briefly describe the state we're in? I mean, because this is your life's work, I guess, yeah. now. Oh, we face the biggest crisis humanity has ever faced, which is the destruction of our life support systems. I mean, nothing else counts if you don't get that right. You lose everything. Um, there's everything that we take for granted, that uh, like our food supply, our water supply, our economy, our social structure, our civilization. All of it is entirely dependent on a habitable planet. And with extraordinary speed, much faster than scientists were predicting, much faster than even my worst nightmares, we are seeing this window of habitability beginning to shut. Now, we're seeing things happening that I feared my grandchildren would witness. So, for example, um, melting of permafrost in, in the Arctic down to levels which weren't predicted till 2090. Um, runaway feedback um, beginning to happen. What's the, that? Runaway? Uh, runaway feedback is where where a um, a, an, an effect uh, d- uh, redoubles itself. I see. Um, so, f- for example, um, in the Arctic, um, the melting of ice uh, means you go from a white sea surface to a dark sea surface that absorbs more heat, that speeds up the melting of ice, and so the cycle goes on. Um, we're seeing a collapse in biological diversity and abundance just happening at horrifying and mind-blowing speed. I mean, I have to shut myself off from this stuff most of the time. I can't face it. My whole life was built on the love of the natural world, and to see it being smashed apart like a sort of group of vandals running through the National Gallery and just slashing the canvases, it just breaks my heart. You know, I find it really hard to process and to come to terms with. And it's not just um, human beings. It's it. I'm, I'm, this is a question. It's ca- it's capitalism specifically that is in the dock here, is it? Well, it's both. I mean, there has human beings have always been destructive. There's there's no question about that. Um, 
uh, I went to a presentation by a paleontologist a couple of years ago who was saying, look, you archaeologists trying to determine when human beings first arrived on a new island or a new continent are wasting your time looking for archaeological evidence, you know, because the flints are very scattered, few and far between, the bonfire sites very scattered. You just have to look at the paleontological evidence, the evidence of the animals, the megafauna. And what you'll see is that everywhere before we turned up had huge animals. A megafauna is the default state of all ecosystems. And you can plot the exact moment when human beings turn up because suddenly they fall off a cliff. You'll see the fossil record full of your mammoths and mastodons and giant ground sloths and short-faced bears and elephant birds. And we killed and it. We killed them all. Tortoises and we just killed them. Bang, they're gone. And, and it happened again and again. And the only reason we've got any megafauna anywhere on Earth, any, any, any elephants and lions and stuff... Megafauna is, is big animals. Big animals. Is that um, those are the places where they co-evolved with humans and realised how dangerous we were. But wherever we turned up in a place where they hadn't encountered us before, they would just stand there while we, while we mowed them down. Um, and everywhere had these monsters. There were monsters all over the world, including in the UK. I mean, we, we had um, um, uh, straight-tusked elephants in, in the last temperate period in the UK, the previous interglacial, um, when they excavated Trafalgar Square. In the river gravels there, there were bones of elephants, bones of hippos, bones of rhinos, lions, there hyenas. In Trafalgar there, there were Square. lions in Trafalgar Square as well. Real ones. Before Lancia got to work. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And, and the, the Thames was, was full of hippos. There were loads of them. I mean, the Trafalgar Square was stuffed with hippo bones. Um, same species. Why don't as in I Africa. know this? It's, it's incredible, isn't it? I mean, you know, this, living alongside foxes and badgers and hedgehogs and jackdaws and pigeons and all the familiar wildlife that we have today, um, a, a megafauna. This was the default state of, of, of all ecosystems was to have huge animals. The same at sea until a couple of hundred years ago. I mean, all around Britain's coast, massive whales, huge um, um, shoals of bluefin tuna storming up the, the, the coasts, leatherback turtles, you know, I mean, just enormous animals everywhere you look. There are probably great white sharks around British waters as well. Um, and the impacts have been astonishing. But, yes, capitalism massively multiplies, amplifies those impacts uh, for quite simple reasons. You know, you don't have to be ideologically opposed to it to recognise these reasons. One is that it depends on economic growth, on continued growth. Growth is the aggregate of everybody's attempts to make profit and to expand their own wealth, uh, which is absolutely fundamental to capitalism. Capitalism is said to fail when it can no longer generate economic growth, which would be fine if the planet were growing at the same pace. But it's not. It's a finite planet. And to pursue perpetual growth on a finite planet is necessarily a recipe for disaster. But it's got a couple of other features as well, which make it, uh, it, it, it an innate enemy of the living world. One is this extraordinary assumption at, at the heart of, of, of capitalism, which is almost never even noticed, let alone examined, which is that the money you've got in your bank account, or the money you can borrow, translates into a right to own natural wealth. So if you have enough money, you can buy a tract of land, or you can buy a private jet which consumes, um, produces massive amounts of carbon dioxide, changing the natural wealth of the atmosphere. Or you can buy bluefin tuna sushi. Or you can line your yacht with mahogany. Or you can um, have, have, have a number of super homes scattered around the world, all with massive environmental impacts. There's no 
obvious right or justification which says money should translate into the purchase of something which belongs to everyone and no one, but that is an innate feature of capitalism. And then the third feature is the assumption that we can all strive for private luxury and we can just keep on accumulating private luxury. I mean, it, it fits in with economic growth, but it's not quite the same thing. Um, now, when you stand back from this, you see, actually, this is just physically impossible. I mean, if everyone in London had their own tennis court and swimming pool and art collection and playground, London would cover half of England. England would cover much of the world. Where would everybody else live? There's not physically enough space and not ecologically enough space either, but it's a, fund, it's a fundamental assumption of capitalism that that's the trajectory we're all on. So I agree with all of this. I completely agree with all of this, and this analysis I, I totally share. But what you do get within the environmental movement is those who often argue that growth is still possible because technology is going to come in as um, some yep. sort of deus ex machina yes, to, yes. To, to, to solve all our problems. Mm. Now, I'm suspicious of all mm. of that and suspicious of that use of technology. Are you as well? So this is the argument they call decoupling. They say we can decouple growth from, from material resource use. And, and they say, look, you know, with efficiency and with a switch away from goods to services, we'll use less material resource um, even as the economy grows. That's called absolute decoupling. You also have relative decoupling where you say we'll use less material resource per unit of economic growth, right. even if material resources yeah. grows. Absolute decoupling of material resource use has been demonstrated nowhere on earth ever. You know, the only time we see less material resource use is when we have less economic activity, like the collapse of the Soviet Union. We saw a massive recession. There was less material resource use. But where economic activity is rising, never in human history have we yet recorded an instance of absolute decoupling. Relative decoupling was happening in the last two decades of the 20th century. We saw less material resource use per unit of economic activity, even though there was more altogether because of economic growth. In the first two decades of the 21st century, there's been a recoupling and we've seen an increased use of material resources per unit of that? economic activity. It turns out that the service industry is phenomenally resource hungry. And a switch from goods to services, paradoxically, wow. means the greater use of goods, the greater use of materials. So um, here we are sit sitting in this lovely studio with its sound baffles and with our microphones and with the recording equipment and with the camera pointed at us and with the other guys in the cubicle doing their thing with all their lovely equipment and their speakers and stuff. We're service industry. We're, this is entirely service, but it's completely dependent on goods. And on goods which turn over at a very high rate, because I'm sure the guys on the other side of the glass will tell us equipment which they were using five years ago is now redundant and they have to replace it. So when um, all political parties, it seems to me, pretty much all political parties, left and right, continue to use the language of economic growth. And this isn't a right wing thing. It's the Labour Party do exactly yeah, the same yeah. about economic growth. You want to push back against that and say, actually, we have to learn to do with less. That's right. Yeah. And that's a very hard thing to say to people because, you know, growth... Uh, so we're surrounded by invisible ideologies, right? So neoliberalism is an invisible ideology. Most people don't even know what it means, and yet it's the determining political doctrine of our age. 
consumerism is an invisible ideology. It's a very powerfully enforced ideology, constantly uh, ramped up, not just through advertising and marketing, but through the entire media, basically saying you can be one of these glossy, happy, beautiful people surrounded by material goods, or you could be a loser. And and it's, it's this very, very powerful ideology, which has been invented. I mean, it's only a century old, yet we think it's always been there. We imagine that people were always trying to just accumulate more and more stuff. It's simply not true. Um, and, um, and, and growthism is an ideology. It's this belief that we can't be happy, that our lives can't be See, fulfilling. So I think it's a spiritual vacuum as well yeah. as a... I mean, you're, you're quite right to analyse it, but it seems to me mm. that you, 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 you want more stuff because there's some sort of... You know, I mean, I'm not trying to press mm. what it is that I do, but, yeah. I mean, there is some sort of spiritual vacuum that's being fi- filled with the shopping centre. It's very interesting you should say that. My, my father-in-law was evacuated to North Wales. He grew up in the Liverpool Docks area, and he was, he and his brother, when they were small children, were evacuated to North Wales into um, the house of a, a, um, a very, um, very religious woman, um, non-conformist, I think Methodist, I'm not completely sure about that, um, which, who was living in what anyone would now see as appalling deprivation and poverty in this tiny little shack um, with tiny little windows, hardly any light, no electric light, no running water. And he, he, he's an economic historian, maybe partly because of this, I don't know why, but, but, he, but he's got a very good objective view of all this. And he says, well, um, she, she had no material aspirations whatsoever. That wasn't the direction of her life. All her aspirations were spiritual and community aspiration. As far as she's concerned, what she had was fine. That was that was enough. And she had a concept of enough. She wasn't starving. Um, she didn't get cold because she didn't feel it. Um, she, she didn't need the light because she'd never had the light. Um, but she had a different light in her life. And, and I'm not saying that you know, a spiritual life is necessarily always the answer to this, but I. But you're right in saying that that consumerism is one of the ideologies that has usurped other and entirely different forms of aspiration. Okay, I've got to stop agreeing with you. We've got to try and find something that we disagree upon, George. So I'm going to talk about Brexit just for a second, oh, right, because okay. I, because well, um, it'll it'll feed back to I hope what we're just talking mm. about now. But I sensed reading stuff before 2016 that you were pretty sceptical about the EU, mm. and now you seem to be much more enthusiastic. Have, uh, am I wrong about that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I call myself a Eurosceptic Remainer. Okay, I see. I think there's a lot wrong with the Euro. European Union, but I think there's a lot more wrong with the swivel-eyed ideologues who will have a f- free run if we leave the European Union. And, you know, I, I sort of really am deeply worried, particularly about a Tory Brexit because of the trade deals they're likely to strike, particularly with the US, where we would just be squashed and have to accept all sorts of appalling things happening, probably to the NHS which has saved my life and that of millions of others and um, and to our food and God knows what else. You know, I mean, you know, this is I mean, I mean, these are what's paradoxical about this is that all of these the sort of right wing Brexiteers who claim to be defending the interests of the nation, they're defending the offshore interest. You know, they're supported, they're financially supported by people whose interests are primarily offshore. The newspapers that support them are all owned by people living offshore. One of the things that's often said about um, us, um, the, the advantages of, of being within a, a 
free trade, large free trade area like the European mm. Union is actually in terms of growth, precisely in terms yeah, no, of no, growth. Yeah, no, no, I forget that. And, totally. and that, that, that actually one of the you know one of the things that's often said on the left about about why it's important that we're part of this mm. is we'll continue to get richer and richer, and and if we leave the EU, we're going to get poorer. Mm. And there's a part of me, and you're not allowed to say this, no. but there's a part of me that says, yes, we've got to learn to be poorer. You know, I mean, you're not allowed to say this. And I was sort of surprised. That you, you seem to me to have been a sort of person who could have said that. Yeah. But I'm well, not sure you have. No, no. So, so you know, there's an awful lot which... which disturbs me about the EU and one of the things is its obsession with these horrendous trade deals which have got all um, you know which are totally about growth but particularly corporate growth and growth in financial <coughs> services which just doesn't trickle down to ordinary people at all it's the worst kind of growth you could possibly have you know it enriches the rich destroys the planet and doesn't help anyone else you know and then they're totally cloth-eared about these things also the agricultural side which amazingly leave is scarcely ever discussed but it's 40 percent of the european budget and it's a total ecological disaster well i mean i, mean, I remember when policy. everybody used to be talking about the common agricultural policy yeah. and how wicked it was and suddenly yeah. everybody forgets about i that. know isn't it bizarre in the midst well why because it was reformed a lot of, i suppose no, some no, no, people it say, reformed, but I mean, it was made worse it was actually made okay. worse. what they call reform is even bigger disaster but why because so many leading lights in the leave campaign themselves are drawing vast agricultural subsidies uh, you know dominic cummings is is his family um no, but that would uh, work the other way Paul, around, wouldn't uh, it? James Presumably Dyson. it would be Remainers. No, 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 no. That would be... Well, you'd think so, but they think they're going to harvest the same subsidies um, by uh, by getting the government they want in this country. Um, it's not to do with subsidies. It's But, but uh, you know, th their position isn't to do with their subsidies, which are a drop in the ocean as far as their general wealth is concerned. But it exposes them. It makes them vulnerable. If they campaign about the common agricultural policy, people can then turn around and say, yeah, but that common agricultural policy has just given you £500,000 this year. You know, James Dyson, I think is the biggest recipient now of... of, of It'd be great of to get rid funds. of it, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, no, no, I, and I, I completely agree with that. It would. And I also fear that the common agricultural policy is unreformable because it's just captured by lobbyists. There is a lot wrong with the EU. I think they uh, and and it's not you know it's not for love of the EU that I voted remain it's for fear of being outside the EU and the just rampant turbocharged capitalism that is quite likely to result are we too late i mean what do you what, what how do you when you read all the dark mountain project mm. paul kings north mm. type of of people I read that and I find myself, there's a little bit of me that finds myself nodding along mm. and thinking, uh, however much I want to be upbeat about this, I cannot see any way in which we're going to defeat the forces that are destroying the planet. Well, I can understand why people are running for the exit. But generally, the people running for the exit are the ones who have got an exit. And at the moment, there are hundreds of millions of people on Earth who have no exit at all. And the more we give up, the more the walls are going to close in on them. I understand the desire to be optimistic mm. and the desire to fight and so forth. Mm. But presumably you must have dark nights of the soul yeah, yeah. quite regularly where you actually think, actually, we've lost. 
of course. I mean, that, that's, that thought is always there. But there's no definitive point of loss. It's not that sort of we've lost everything. We haven't lost everything. We might have lost coral reefs. We've almost certainly lost coral reefs. And that I can't even bear to look at that. I mean, that's just such a horrible, horrible thing to have in my mind that I, I just won't even have it in my mind, which is I know it's a failing. I should be writing about it, but I can't face it. I literally can't face that. But it doesn't mean we've lost everything. Maybe the, a lot of the victims of Hurricane Idai or Cyclone Idai in Mozambique, they lost pretty well everything. Some even lost their lives. Bangladesh, people are routinely losing everything. Somalia, people are losing everything. But the more we say there's nothing we can do, we give up, we've lost, the more people will actually lose definitively, will lose everything, including their lives. And I think we've got a moral duty... Um, to fight for everything we can save. And that's that will be, the, the, the longer we leave this and the more pathetic we are about it, there'll be fewer and fewer things that we can save, but every single one of those things is precious and should be saved. And and actually, you know, I've got a big problem with Dark Mountain. You know, I, I, I see there being quite, in some ways, quite honest about the, the, the problems, but at the same time, a lot of them are literally running for the exit. They say, right, we throw up our hands, we give up, we're turning our backs on all this, we're not going to do anything about it, and here's our justification for not doing anything about it. They do not have the moral right to say that, because they are not going to be on the front line of these impacts. By and large, environmental disaster hits the poor first and worst, and the rich, and that includes almost everyone in countries like our own, um, last and least. And and so for the comparatively rich ourselves to walk off... Isn't there a psychological a thing? I just, just, uh, just to push back slightly on this, isn't, uh, aren't you, in a way, uh, in, in, in talking about hope so much, the fact that there are, uh, uh, everybody can listen to you and go, oh, OK, we've got, you know, it, we don't need to change too much. You know, it's only when people say, oh, by the way, there's nothing to do. We've lost it. That people begin to wake up, mm. ironically, yeah. as a strategic no, thing. That's a strategic I don't see thing. that happening okay. at all. In fact, I see despair as being the flip side of denial. And in fact, see. I've seen loads of people um, go, uh, say for years, oh, it, it's, uh, cl uh, climate breakdown doesn't exist. It's all a conspiracy. It's all complete nonsense. And then flip from that position to saying, oh, yeah, it's real, but it's too late, there's nothing we can do oh, about really? it. Oh, really? There's people who've and just made no that journey oh, like oh, that. I'm, I'm loads of people. Oh, really? I've seen it happen frequently. And and they're both forms of denial. And, and there's no intervening stage where they say, yes, it's re real, therefore we have to act. And, and that is a point where we all should be. We <clears throat> must be acting Extinction on Rebellion, the Rebellion... Uh, to what extent, to, to how, how far down the rebellion line do we go to protect this mm. in terms of, I guess, violence and uh, those, you yeah. know, those sorts of issues? Well, I mean, I, I got arrested last month as part of Extinction Rebellion. I think non-violent civil disobedience is an absolutely essential component of any political campaign, whatever it might be. I mean, we would have no democracy without it. We would have no rights without it. All our rights and democracy have been secured as, uh, by that as one of a suite of tools. Um, I don't think that violent um, rebellion gets us anywhere at all, not least because we'll just get fried. I mean, we, you know, the inequality of arms now. People could look back with some um, nostalgia to the French Revolution and say, oh, they stormed the Bastille with pitchforks. You, know, you just can't do that now because, um, you know, they could wipe you out from kilometres away before you get anywhere close. It's pointless. It's completely pointless, apart from the fact that also it almost certainly creates worse outcomes rather than better ones. Um, 
And so and so we have to do it non-violently. We have to use all the democratic tools at our disposal, and that obviously includes voting, but it's much more than voting. It's organisation, it's action, it's protest. Um, and, and, yeah, I'll just keep doing that. As I get older, I get more conservative. I, I, I personally do. And the resources within conservatism, broadly speaking, to address environmental issues seem to be much there seem to be much more there than are actually used mm. that things need conserving yeah whereas on the left the left still seems to me to be uh very attracted to I this idea of progress mm. you know mm. from wilson's white heat of technology all the mm. way through to you know fully automated luxury ca- uh, communism <laughs> yeah. type of thing yeah. you know this sort of go-getting yeah. uh, whiggish view of history which is part of the problem sure. and i find myself a sort of little englander want to be mm. in the shire mm. smoking my pipe <laughs> retreating and thinking this has a sort of that this, this certainly has less of a footprint yeah well i'd, I'd say two things first of all there's no political conservative at the moment there's a radical right exactly right um and you know conservative like my grandma was a conservative you know and she wanted to keep everything the same which had good and bad sides to it um probably mostly bad but from the environmental point of view probably mostly good but but that that just does not feature in politics no, at all you're right there's, there's, there's no such thing you know and no. the party which calls itself conservative is anything but yes it's, it's, it's revolutionary it's it wants to smash things up it wants to reshape the world yeah uh, exactly and and it's extreme turbocharged neoliberal and it wants to reshape the world in in the service of offshore capital that's not conservative in any way on the left well it's a very mixed bag because you've got the green left it's you know eco-socialism the green left is a big thing and it's beginning to penetrate the labor party in quite a big way with its green new deal and a lot of its other thinking um i you know i think uh, we're, we're beginning to see quite significant changes taking place there and i think as a result there is more hope for this on the left than there is on the right. I mean, the right's got no truck with this at all. In fact, the real danger is this, that you know, climate breakdown is necessarily going to drive huge numbers of people from their homes. It's already... The, the yeah. um, environmental breakdown is the biggest cause Migration. of people having to leave. Um, and, so, and so we will then sort of put up the walls and say, we're not having these people because that's what we've been doing. Um, and and as more people try to flee to countries where there hasn't been a total environmental collapse, you will see that empowering the radical right, which will say, oh, we, we're here to defend you against these refugees, and they'll say horrible things about them. Now, the radical right is the least likely um, um, political side to take any action on climate breakdown or anything like that. So you can see this sort of really nasty, vicious cycle beginning to turn. And we just have to prevent that from happening. You know, one, by making refugees welcome and by fighting back against that rhetoric, but two, by preventing these complete catastrophes from taking place. George Monbiot, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, my friend. Thanks, Charles. Great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it. And do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing. And I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com. Confessions.